You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. All right, so this morning we are looking at a passage that is so familiar so familiar and with anything that's familiar there's always the chance of us just like kind of like blasting through it and not really like being moved by it and so i just want to pray for us that the spirit would do something in a very familiar passage that we've heard lots of times you've maybe read books on it um there's probably not anything new that is going to be said, but that's okay because the spirit uh, is the one who can convict and allow this truth to sink deeper. So let me pray. Jesus, um, thank you for your word that's living and active, that pierces to our hearts. And my prayer is that this morning, this very familiar passage would would cut deep um, Maybe in order to convict and bring us to repentance, maybe to free us from guilt or shame, maybe that we would remember who you are, God, or maybe it would be to speak to our identity and who we are. And so, Spirit, use these words um, and move in the hearts of, of me and uh, our congregation that we would find ourselves more in love with you after hearing your word. Amen. From January to May of 1998, I lived in Washington, D.C., but for the purpose of this story, it really extends through the summer. It was the most far from God that I have probably ever been. And I was a believer, but I just lived a really uh, crazy six months, seven months of life. And uh, it was what this passage calls wild living. <laughs> and it was. And it wasn't just like the things that you could imagine, which was part of it. It was beyond that because we can live gluttonous lives, even drunken lives, and not cause a ton of damage to others. But what I found most damaging during those seasons is the level of self-centeredness and selfishness and egotism that was the most damaging. Um, and it was a really, it was a really horrible, horrible season. And what was beautiful is uh, it was a few months later after that, after coming back to ASU, that I found myself connected to a local church and really uh, finding Jesus and seeing him for who he truly is. And so a lot came out of that time. But there is no doubt that during that season, I was lost. And most of the damage wasn't done in D.C. It was done when I was actually back home in Oregon. 
and it was the summer after my senior, my sister's senior year of high school. So a kind of like a super fun summer, right? And I just wreaked havoc, havoc on our family. Super selfish, uh, got in a car accident with a borrowed car, um, just made my parents' life hell. It was just really, really an ugly season as I look back on it. I was wild living and I was the younger son. We're going to look at the parable of the prodigal son, which is really a horrible title. Um, I am calling it for this purpose or for our purposes, the parable of the lost sons. Um, And we'll see why in a little bit. Um, But I want to give us the context because if we were just to read the one specific parable, we would miss actually Jesus's primary point. And so we need to look at really all of Luke 15 to get a good understanding of what Jesus is trying to do with this final parable he tells of three. And the context is Jesus is gathered with tax collectors and sinners. And somewhere in the midst, there's some Pharisees. I like to think of them sitting in the back because they start grumbling to one another about how, how does this Jesus gather with tax collectors and dine with these sinners? And they were muttering to themselves about it. And so Jesus tells a series of three parables. The first parable is about a man who has a hundred sheep and one goes missing and uh, he leaves the 99 behind and he goes and he searches and he finds the lost sheep and he says, he, he gathers all of his neighbors together and he throw, he, they rejoice and they have this like party and they're celebrating about the lost sheep that they found. And uh, he says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not repent. And I think that alone is starting to like probe the Pharisees, right? Because he's basically saying there's more Uh, celebration over all these people that I'm gathered with than you and living your righteous lives. So then he tells the second parable about this woman who has 10 silver coins. She loses one. She scours through the house, looks everywhere. She finally finds it. And she does the same thing. She gathers her neighbors together. They celebrate. They rejoice over this lost coin that's now found. And again, he says, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So he's kind of, he's like doubling down. Okay, okay, Jesus, we see what you're doing. We see what you're saying. And then he goes and tells this much longer and somewhat far more complex story. So let's let's look into that. We're just going to pop in and out of the text as we go. Verse 11 is where it starts in Luke 15. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So this son comes to his father and essentially says, like, I want my inheritance. I I wish you were dead. I want my portion of what you'll hand down to me now as opposed to later when you die. And the father, for whatever reason, says okay. And he divides the property and... Uh, gives the younger son his portion and 
So obviously whatever's left is the father's still, but will eventually become the older sons, and that matters. Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. I hear you. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to citizens of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Starts off not long after that. I, I always imagine the story that the younger son like leaves right away. And this doesn't have a lot to do with the story, but I do think it's kind of like there's probably some tension building in those days or weeks or months because, and this is going to matter in a little bit, there was land that was likely given to the younger son and he would have had to sell that land in order to monetize all that he had to then leave. And so he was there for a little bit of time and I think that that... Uh, has the potential of leading to some of the tension with the older brother. It says he was feeding pigs and no and longed to eat their food. In the Jewish context, uh, pigs were an unclean animal. In some ways, they are a symbol for all that's unclean. And so uh, this Jewish boy is now, or young man, is now not just like working with the pigs, but he's, his life has gotten so low that he's longing to eat their food. And I want to pause here just for a moment to talk about uh, the shame that the younger son is, is maybe experiencing and for sure has brought upon him and his family. I think first in that, that idea of selling the land, we all know that a part of the Abrahamic blessing was uh, land and seed, like that they would this this nation would grow and blessing that they would be blessed to be a blessing. And so the idea of land was super important. And so when the Israelites come to Israel, the 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 land is all portioned out to all the different tribes. And then within those tribes, it's portioned off to these different families, and that's handed down. And you can read the Old Testament and all of the like boring Levitical laws to learn about all that. But this land was likely family land that had been passed down for a long time. And so again, there's, there's, this, there's this shame that the younger son is bringing upon his family by asking for the inheritance early, one, but then to then monetize it, to sell it off to someone who may or may not have been family, and then to leave and bring shame to this like broader community that they're in, that he's leaving this space that God had given for the people, for the Israelites. And then, if it's not enough for it to be brought to his family and his broader community, then he ends up serving and working with pigs, and he's bringing that on the entire, like, religious establishment. Like, his entire religion, his entire culture is now being shamed. And I don't know how he's feeling during this time, right right away if he's recognizing all these things but but it is true that that shame is coming down upon him and upon uh this broad community that he's working with and 
I want us just for a, for a couple minutes, I really want us to feel and experience this story. And there's lots of characters in the story, but, but for a moment, would you just turn to some people around you and maybe you've been this, this younger brother, maybe you've been the, the father who's had someone uh, abandon you or leave you or someone that you're longing to come back to you. Would you just turn around and uh, just share maybe if you've been in this position before or if you're in this position now or how, how this has felt? Like what, what are the feelings that go into either being in this place as the father or as the younger son, the younger brother? All right. We'll let the person who's talking finish. I know that wasn't nearly enough time to, for everyone probably to share <laughs> uh, such a like potentially hurtful and, and deep uh, question. Um, I know when I look back at that, that season of my life of living as the younger son, I feel a lot of guilt and shame and sorrow, mostly because I didn't even realize what I was doing. <laughs> and like the damage I was causing, but I like look back and I'm like, gosh, that sucks for my sister. Like I kind of dropped this bomb in the middle of this like kind of exciting season of her life and the way I tormented my mom, who's really sweet. Like it was just, it was living so much for myself that I didn't see all the damage I was causing. And I imagine uh, that's what the younger son is feeling when this next thing happens in verse 17. When he came to his senses, we don't know how long it took him to come to his senses, but uh, it took him some time. He comes to his senses. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. At some point along the way, him coming to his senses meant that he remembered who his father was. I imagine like if his father was kind of vindictive or prone to anger or uh, easily held a grudge or was a shaming father or a father who like pumped guilt onto these kids, that there is no way he would have gone home. There's something about the father's character that the younger son recognizes and says, he will accept me back. Now he doesn't come to his full senses because he doesn't think he'll, his father will welcome him back as a son. He expects the father to welcome him back as a servant. And he says, I'm not worthy to be called his son. And that, that may be true. <laughs> like the actions that he's done, he may like have the right to believe that way, feel that way. But he comes enough to his senses to realize my father will welcome me back. Let's continue with verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him while he was still a long ways off. I don't know what this looks like. I don't know how big their property was, so we've got to use our imagination a little bit here. Uh, was it coincidental? I mean, this is a parable, so I guess like Jesus can tell it however he wants. But I like to imagine the father, if there's like the road that leads 
out of the property. I like to imagine the father as he goes about his daily work, anytime he walks by that spot, he looks down the road just in case his son might be coming back. And then this day he does. And he was filled with compassion for him. I don't know if you guys realize, but the entire reason that the Hughes family is a part of Missio Day Community Church is because Chris Gonzalez and I were in seminary together. We became great friends in seminary. We were in Greek class together. And while I don't remember a lot of my Greek, far more than I do my Hebrew, there are certain words in Greek that just have drilled themselves into my soul. And one of those words is the word from compassion, which is splachnizomai. And it comes from the root word splachna, which is like your guts or your inner parts. And so this idea of compassion, and if you, like, when, you, when we have compassion towards someone, there's something inside of us that, like, moves. I ran to the store yesterday to get lemons and uh, grapefruit juice. Um, those of you who are smart know there's only one reason you run to the store on a Saturday night for lemons and grapefruit juice. There's some drinks being made. And so I had to run to the grocery store to get lemons and grapefruit juice. And I pull in, and there's a family of five. Gosh, our world is so freaking broken. There's this family of five. This mom's sitting there. She's got a baby, like maybe six months old. Two boys. Um, and they're standing there, like, begging for food. And splachnizomai. Like, I felt, compa- I was like, so I had to do something. So I bought some food for them. Um, so we could drink and they could eat. But um, it's that feeling inside, this thought, like it moves you to do something. And is there any greater sign of like compassion and love than running towards someone, hugging them and kissing them? There's, I, I just think like, this picture is so strong of like this father, the feeling inside of him of love and compassion moved him to get up, run to his son, embrace him and kiss him. The son says to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The son comes, he says his rehearsed lines. We've all done this, right? Like you've got this big confrontation. You've got this big, you've got to repent or whatever it might be. You've got your rehearsed lines. That's what he said when he was feeding the kids. I'm going to say this. He goes to the father. He says his rehearsed lines. And I love the father's reaction. He's like, you're an idiot. He doesn't say that, but right? Like, I imagine him like waving his hands. Stop. Or maybe he's still holding him. Maybe he's still holding him. That's what I'd be doing if Titus or Drexler comes back. I'd be holding him. And you just yell, quick, get the best robe, get the ring, prepare the fattened calf. He doesn't even acknowledge this statement from the son. He doesn't even consider the idea that he's not not his son. He just like, no, you're my son. 
And he, he shows him by getting the best robe for him, putting this ring on his finger, probably a ring of identity that like showed him that he belonged to this family. And then he prepares this feast to celebrate. And he says, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. It's interesting because the son had essentially wished his father dead at the beginning of this story by declaring the inheritance. And yet in the end, it was the son who was dead and was lost, but is now found and alive again. Okay, let's go back to the original context. Remember, we've got uh, sinners, and I'm going to point, so sinners and tax collectors, and then some Pharisees in the back. You guys, you've like been grumbling to one another. Um, remember, that's the context. That's who Jesus is speaking to. He's just told these two parables. This is another thing from uh, one of our seminary classes. We had this preaching uh, pastor, Dr. Sanukian. Go left, dummy. Go left, dummy. So when you're, so this is all for any of you who want to preach or even if you're teachers. When you're like going, when you want to go like this left to right, which is the way we speak or the way we like outline things. If I do that as the preacher, it's backwards for you guys. So go left, dummy. So you had the first parable, the second parable, and the third parable. Now I lost my point. But um, the context is these parables. And in the parables, they end, the first two parables end with rejoicing, this ingathering of community, and the lost thing has been found. So all of you, all of you sinners, tax collectors, and Pharisees, I'll let you be the judge of yourself, would expect the story to end here. But those of you who are smart, and again, I'll let you be the ones to uh, decide who that is, you would maybe be sitting there thinking, there's one difference about this story. In the first two par parables, the person who lost their item goes crazy searching for that lost item. Why didn't the father go and search for the son? Why didn't the father go and search for the son? Jesus is about to drop a bomb on the Pharisees. The son isn't, the, the younger son isn't the lost one. He is, he is. Jesus is still speaking to the tax collectors and the sinners, and most likely they associate themselves with the lost son. But it's not just about that lost son. Who may it be then, you're asking? I'm glad you guys have never read this story and I get to bring this to you, the surprise ending. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he is back safe and sound. The older son or the older brother became angry and refused to go in. The older son essentially has the opposite reaction of the father. The father responds with compassion and love. The older son responds in anger. The younger, or the father uh, runs to the son and the older brother stands outside the party. 
he just stays. Complete opposite reaction of the father. The other thing he did is he doesn't really understand his inheritance. He says, you never gave me a party like this. In some ways, this older son is acting completely opposite of the father and the younger son. He doesn't understand the character of the father. The younger son, it may have taken time, but the younger son knows who the father is and knows his character. The other son is oblivious to that. Um, and then it says, sorry, I think I skipped one of my pages. Yeah, okay. And this is where things get a little crazy. The father is inside celebrating and he realizes that the other son, older son isn't there. So what does the father do? He goes and looks for the lost son. This is the point where the Pharisees should feel that like knife digging in. That they are the lost one. All the tax collectors and sinners, they probably know who they are. They know they're lost, and they are lost as a part of this story. But they're, lo they're lost in irreligion, but the Pharisees are lost too. They're lost in their religion. And in some ways, as we'll see, it has far more dangerous consequences. So the father goes out, and he pleads with him. But he answers his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Look at all these things the older son gets wrong. First off, his identity. He calls himself a slave. I've been slaving for you. Then his relationship with the younger brother, he says, this son of yours. So he's totally like detached himself from the family. And he doesn't understand his inheritance. You never gave me a party like this. Again, he doesn't understand the character of the father and his identity, his relationships are the ones that are truly broken. And then the father speaks. He says, my son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The father speaks identity back onto him. My son. No, you're not a slave. You haven't been slaving for me. You are my son. And the truth is, 
everything I have is yours. Like we've already divided the inheritance. Everything that's here is yours. I do think it's kind of ironic because in, you can tell the older son is frustrated that the father has killed a fattened calf for the younger son. And in some ways, he's kind of laying claim on the inheritance as well. Because technically, everything is the father's still. It will eventually be his. And so by even these little hints, the son himself is kind of expecting that inheritance. And then at the end, the father says, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He doesn't allow the son to be detached from his brother. And I think like last week uh, in the, the parable of the good Samaritan, it's the same kind of like statement. This is obviously way more subtle, but who is my neighbor? Again, now let's step out of the story again and remember the context the Pharisees are mad that Jesus is hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. They're in the back, like casting judgment and questioning Jesus. And Jesus is basically saying, this brother of yours, all these people who are here, the tax collectors and sinners were lost and are now found. This is actually your brother. Who is my neighbor? The Samaritan. Who is my, bro who is my brother? The tax collectors and sinners. That's who it is. So what are the implications for us? I think like simply, just one of the simple points of all three of the parables is that uh, when a sinner repents, there should be rejoicing. And so just across the board, that could be the repentance that leads to life like that first repentance, that could be the repentance of daily life with one another. That when someone gets to a point where they're able to repent and say sorry, we should rejoice in that. And I know that's way harder said than done. In fact, I think that kind of leads to the next point is some of us have been really hurt by brothers and sisters in Christ. There's been a lot of damage done by our, our brothers and our sisters and like real damage. I'm not trying to say like it shouldn't matter because it does, but real, like real hurt, real damage. It's the, it's the story that you wanted to tell your neighbors here, but you couldn't because it's so deep that you don't want to talk about it. When that person repents, we should rejoice if we recognize that we too are tax collectors and sinners who have received ultimate uh, forgiveness, that when we repented, when we turned towards God, he ran to us and enveloped us in his arms and kissed us and waved the new robe and the ring and made a feast for us, would we too be those who rejoice when people come back to God? I hinted at this kind of classic missio con, uh, concept of religion, irreligion, and gospel. Uh, 
some of us might find ourselves way more identifying with the, the irreligious son. Um, some of us may be identifying with the Pharisees, the religious people who love to follow the rules, but maybe forget uh, who the father is. I just want us to take a moment. It helps me to close my eyes. If it doesn't help you, then do something different. Stare at the trees or stare at your feet. Do something that allows you to just be silent for the world, from the world around you. And I just want to ask a series of questions and see if the spirit will stir stump, something in you. Um, maybe he already has, but... Is there, where are you not remembering the character of the father? Are you forgetting how gracious he is? Are you forgetting how much he loves you? Are you forgetting that you can turn to him at any moment and he, he will respond to you? Maybe there's long time shame that's binding you. Maybe it's hurt. Maybe you've been really hurt and it's bound up. Maybe you've forgotten who you are. Maybe you know who God is, but you just can't accept or you can't believe that you are called beloved. Maybe you can't believe that there's an inheritance for you. Maybe you can't believe that the creator, the God of the universe would run to you and he wants to embrace you and kiss you. Maybe you've forgotten that you're a daughter of the king. Maybe you've forgotten you're a son of the king. I want to read a passage over us this morning. It has not been, it is not the first time I've read this passage to close a sermon. I'm certain it will not be the last. But it's a passage of identity and inheritance. And spirit, I pray that whatever questions, whatever things were popping into the hearts and minds of your people this morning, what a word or a verse from this passage speak to that. Would you speak truth in the same way the father spoke truth to both sons who were lost? Would this truth penetrate their hearts? Praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through the blood 
the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. In the same way that the father prepared a massive feast for his son, God the father has prepared a feast for us. One day we will get to feast in the presence of the king. And until then, we get to feast weekly. We get to remember Jesus Jesus who was betrayed, Jesus who died on a cross, Jesus who resurrected. He gave us uh, this, this ritual, this, this communion, the Eucharist, to remember what he's done and what he's promised. That this would be a foretaste of this massive feast with the fattened calf that we get to enjoy forever. we have begun proclaiming the mystery of communion, the blood, or the, the wine, the juice, commemorating the blood of Jesus poured out for us, the bread broken, given to us, representing his body. And let's proclaim this mystery of faith when we say Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Say it with me. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again.